Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Ecom Sales Tax Podcast. I'm Andy Johnson, and I'm your host. I am a CPA, and I've got my co-host with me, Dan Peisner. Hello, Dan. Hey there, Andy. So Dan is a authority on all things, all taxes related, well, all state taxes related to e-commerce businesses. In fact, Dan is my co-author of the AICPA Multi-State Income Tax course. And uh, Dan, today I thought it would be good to talk about income taxes in the light of Wayfair. I think that's a great idea, Andy. Uh, ever, in the light of, in the uh, wake of Wayfair, uh, this sales tax, of course, has, has gotten a lot of uh, attention. But the, I think the the income tax has gotten shortchanged a little bit because as as people are going into these states, the the income tax can become every bit as important for planning purposes as sales tax. Yeah, sounds like you're like being sympathetic to income tax. I like, wouldn't say it's bad that it, it's getting short shrift. Well, it's uh, I, I wouldn't say I feel sympathetic to it so much as it's a it's it's like a, a tiger laying in wait for anybody to to walk by and to, to suddenly pounce upon. Right, the point is well taken. It's it's something that uh, e-commerce businesses and their tax advisors should not be. Uh, ignoring, right? It's, it should be paying attention to it. So, Dan, I have a few slides I want to share. Okay. And uh, so I'm calling this, How Does Wayfair Affect Nexus for State Income Taxes? And uh, how about for e-commerce businesses in particular? So I know we have tax advisors on here, but this is mostly targeted at the business themselves, so CFO, uh, controller, tax manager. Uh, what should we, as an e-commerce business, what should we be thinking about when it comes to state and local taxes? So um, we've talked a lot about Wayfair. Um, Wayfair is a very important case, uh, brand new case this year. Uh, the last time the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on uh, Nexus issues was back in 1992. So that was the Quill decision, and Wayfair overturned Quill. And Wayfair said, you know, uh, Quill was actually wrongly decided, and we're going to have to uh, rethink the whole premise because Quill said that uh, unless you had some, at least some physical presence, more than a slight physical presence, that uh, you could not have nexus in a state. And so for one thing, we have to unlearn that, that physical presence is not uh, the protection against nexus that it once was. Um, it's still about substantial nexus. That's, that's a proper um, terminology that the Supreme Court is still using. Uh, I'm going to talk about that just in a minute, a little bit more in detail. Um, so... Although Quill has been overturned now, Nexus is still a big deal. So um, as we were fond of saying, just when we've talked about Wayfairs, Wayfair obviously applies to e-commerce businesses because Wayfair is an e-commerce business. 
and e-commerce businesses are most are potentially most likely to run afoul of the um, nexus thresholds, <coughs> like like South Dakota had you know, the the subject of this whole case. Um, but I guess the point I want to make is not only does it apply to any industry beyond e-commerce, but it also there's no um, notion in the in the uh, opinion or in the discussion that the Supreme Court views economic excuse me nexus for income tax purposes any differently than it does for sales tax. Do you agree on that point, Dan? Very much so. Uh, very much. Uh, I've, the the issue before them was sales tax, so they they didn't really uh, the justices really did not opine on income tax at all. But the the position that was was ultimately taken by the by well by both sides was that physical presence it really wasn't a great standard to begin with. The only difference was whether Congress should be the ones to change it or not. And so for and to be honest, the states, for the most part, have never, they, they've tried to hold Quilt to just being a sales tax decision. The, the states have never, uh, the states have never held that, that Quill uh, affected them in the slightest. And so the, the Supreme Court did absolutely nothing to, to change that. Uh, there's in, in no way, shape or form, is, can anything in that decision be found to set found to, to give any support for income tax being limited to physical presence. It never really has been at this point. I don't think it ever will be absent some uh, uh, miracle of Congress. Mm -hmm. Speaking of a miracle of Congress, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I thought it would be good for us to just back up a few paces and just review some of what I talk about a lot in my start with Nexus book, which is the evolution of Nexus and the taxation of interstate commerce. So Dan, um, here I have a picture of, of the, well, it's some quotes from the U.S. Constitution, <laughs> at the, specifically the Commerce Clause. Some refer to it as the Interstate Commerce Clause, some refer to it as the Negative Commerce Clause, some Dormant Commerce Clause. But anyway, here is what taxpayers and their advisors and businesses have always relied on to varying uh, lack of success over the years. That is whether the U U.S. Constitution says that Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states and foreign nations and Indian tribes. Um, so for many years, even maybe a hundred in 50 years, it was just very, very clear that no state could impose either a sales tax on interstate commerce and certainly not an income tax. That, that just wasn't possible. Um, but these things started to erode. Uh, probably back in 1930s and 40s, you started to see some erosion of this kind of blanket policy that there could be no taxation of interstate commerce unless the Congress specifically allowed it. So that's why they call it the dormant commerce clause because 
if Congress failed to do anything, it still acted to prohibit states from act, taxing interstate commerce. So as these course cases went to court, that's when the Supreme Court was kind of forced to, let's see, okay, how are we going to, are we really going to uh, adhere to this standard, which seems kind of arbitrary that if a tax has any impact on interstate commerce, that it's automatically unconstitutional. And you just know the Supreme Court's not going to go with that for long, right? Because that doesn't challenge their intellect. It just doesn't seem fair in their view of it. Uh, so they came up with this concept of nexus. And, and as I did some research, I, I, couldn't find, I, I couldn't find any instance before the 1940s of the term nexus, but it is something that the Supreme came up with, Supreme Court came up with to back up their reasoning that before a state in which you had no voting powers could, you, could make you collect their tax or pay their tax, you had to have some connection. That's what they call nexus. Um, now, I want to talk about the case that uh, kind of, you know, everything was going against the taxpayer. And this protection against interstate commerce was really eroding. So, Dan, what do you think this picture is trying to convey? There was uh, a case that kind of really... I, I would say the straw that broke the camel's back, but it's hard to know which straw it is because there, do, there does appear to be quite a bit of straw there. Well, apparently, if you added one more straw to this to this camel because at some point it, it, it would break. And so <clears throat> that brings me to the case that almost nobody's ever heard of, but the, it was the straw that broke the back. And it was Northwestern State Cement Company versus Minnesota. And Northwestern is a, as far as Minnesota is concerned, a foreign corporation because it's based in Iowa. And they had some office space that they leased in Minnesota. They had employees performing sales functions in Minnesota. They sold tangible property, the cement powder, for lack of a better terminology. Um, and so Minnesota said, hey, you're earning income in our state because you have customers in our state. And it's not right. It's not fair that you're not paying some income tax in our state. So they assessed it. Uh, Northwestern Cement went right to court <clears throat> and, and eventually ended up in the Supreme Court <clears throat> arguing that our, under our Commerce Clause rights, our due process rights, Minnesota cannot tax interstate commerce. And clearly, we're involved in interstate commerce. And Dan, what happened? The Supreme Court came back and said that they could very much tax it. As long as it's not considered discriminatory, whatever that means, as long as the tax is properly apportioned, whatever that means, and as long as there is sufficient nexus, whatever that means, then yes, Minnesota, any state can tax the income from the interstate operations of a foreign corporation. Now, Dan, uh, I wasn't around in 1959. I still hadn't come onto the scene, and obviously you weren't around. But given that 
no state could tax interstate commerce, especially in, uh, income tax. What do you imagine was the reaction by businesses to this case? I'm going to go with fear, panic, outrage, calling up their representatives, calling up their lobbyists and having them call their representatives and so on and so forth. Yes. Yep. <clears throat> uh, it was uh, viewed as kind of scorched earth, like, man, how in the world are we going to comply with all these new state laws? We don't even know what properly apportioned means or sufficient nexus. Uh, the burden of compliance is going to be outrageous. Uh, states all have different laws. Now we got to figure all this stuff out. What are you trying to do to us? And maybe surprisingly, given our, cult, given our culture today, Congress was similarly outraged that uh, the Supreme Court would do this. First of all, Congress under the, the U.S. Constitution is specifically tasked or given the authority if they so choose to regulate interstate commerce, not the Supreme Court. Um, they worried about what would be the impact on such a decision on businesses and would it uh, limit job creation and growth. And then kind of the same worry we have right now is once the Supreme Court opines on how the, the a particular uh, clause in the Constitution operates, that's once they say what it is, they are also saying what it was and what it will be. So once they say, yeah, um, a state can tax interstate commerce, why not? And so um, there, there'd be no, nothing barring states from going back into pre-1959 years. So Congress was also outraged at this development. And so they got together and they created a new public law, a new federal law called Public Law 86272. Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot. What year was Public Law 86272 issued or signed into law? It was. Well, I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. Northwestern Cement was decided in 1959. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with 59 as well. All right, good. You, you responded. See, that just proves that we don't rehearse these. In fact, um, it was the 86th Congress. Sometimes people get a little confused. They think like, "Wow, that must be a recent law, 1986." No, no. 19- I know you were trying to see if I walked into that trap. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Because I figure if I tell it like that, you won't forget it. And nobody will forget it. Um, But it was pretty much a lightning reaction for as fast as Congress can react for them to enact this law within seven months of the Supreme Court's decision in Northwestern State Cement. So um, they just got together and they said, uh, we may not agree on everything, but we can definitely agree we don't want this case. And maybe we'll, we need to come together and have some, quote-unquote, comprehensive reform on multi-state taxes, but at least let's pass this law. And so they did pass it, and they said, okay, from now on, you know, Congress can pass prospective laws. From now on, no state 
uh, or any other political subdivision has the power to impose a net income tax, then why did they restrict it to net income tax, do you think? Uh, I don't think they wanted to, they, they didn't want to affect the sales tax naturally, be my guess. And I think at the time, most most of the taxes were still net income taxes. The uh, A lot of the, the other, I think if I remember, although I if I recall, some of the gross receipts did come about in the, as a, as a, an effect of the depression in order to kind of prop up state revenue uh, when, when you had falling incomes. Uh, I think some of the more, the more uh, exotic gross receipts taxes are a little more recent. Well, for one thing, they, they may, we don't have a record of why they did this, but uh, we can surmise. Um, the, the tax at issue in Northwestern cement was a net income tax by Minnesota. And they, what one thing they could agree on is let's overturn this case. And so net income turns out to be a very important part of this law. Um, and then the other things that they said, so no state can impose a net income tax if all you do is basically what Northwestern Cement was doing, and that is solicita- soliciting orders for tangible personal property, which orders are approved and fulfilled from a point outside the state, right? So that's exactly what Northwestern Cement was doing. It's exactly the ruling that the Supreme Court had issued and the uh, Congress came back and point for point overturned it with this new law. But the important thing to remember is public law, two things. Public law 6272 is still on the books, still totally valid. However, it has some very big limits. First of all, it only pr- prevents net income taxes, not gross receipts taxes, not sales taxes, not um, franchise taxes that aren't based on net income, et cetera, right? Not minimum taxes that have no basis in whether or not you uh, made it income or not. I like California. California is exactly who I was thinking about. Um, second of all, it only protects you if all you do is sell tangible personal property and if all your activities are just considered solicitation of orders for that TPP and it has to be shipped from a point outside the state, orders approved outside the state, there's a lot of limits. And so states quickly recognize that. I mean, states are voracious revenue seekers. And they said, okay, well, this is a federal law. we got to abide by it. However, um, it's got some limits because we can't, it doesn't affect us for sales taxes. We can pass some other taxes like a franchise tax or the cat in Ohio. Um, and we can circumvent this law. And so we can also press the limits of sales taxes. So speaking of nexus for sales taxes, uh, and going back to, so Public Law 6272, still on the books, right, Dan? Still a valid law. Very much so. However, if you sell software, you're out, right? If you sell services, consulting, training, warranty, uh, you no longer enjoy the benefits of Public Law 6272, correct? Now, I'll be 
Andy, one area where I think the software could be interesting is there are uh, some states that have held uh, that, and, I, and this is not something I've personally tested, but I think it is something worth looking at as the states kind of uh, advance uh, and, and start to push this a little bit further, that in order to, to get what they wanted on the sales tax end, a lot, there are some states that have declared uh, the software to be tangible personal property. So even though it's, it is electronic in a sense, uh, I think if you're, it, for, for those who are looking at particularly big assessments or uh, tax issues in states that, that do consider software to be tangible personal property, there is a possibility of, a, of an 86272 defense. Now, that's certainly not guaranteed, and it's on a, on, and it's, I'd be very careful uh, on prospective tax planning before relying upon that without some good written evidence, but for a defense, it, it could be worth a try. Yeah, in the spirit of, hey, if we're under audit and they're assessing us an income tax and we're a, so a SaaS computer software company, we're going to try to argue public law 86272. If we're trying to, to plan whether we should file for income taxes in a state, uh, we're probably not going to use that as our primary justification for not doing income tax returns or registering for income tax. My primary reason is not only just risk mitigation, but the federal law is, is the law that says uh, that protects you against net income tax nexus. And so it will be the federal law that defines what tangible property is. Uh, and you would probably look towards, you know, something in the Internal Revenue Code more than you would give weight to a state's definition of tangible property. But it's a good point. Um, so um, states ha have always tried to press the limits on what's considered nexus. Um, and as we know from talking about Wayfair, Wayfair said you, you can have nexus simply by virtue of just having a virtual presence, no physical presence, an economic presence. So, Dan, uh, I just pulled a list of the states that have, as of the end of July of this year, states that have uh, an economic nexus concept for sales taxes. And this is kind of stunning to me, the speed with which states have moved forward with trying to implement the concept, the principles of Wayfair. How about for you? Yeah, uh, they've, the, the states have really, um, the, to use a, an analogy I, I heard uh, by another practitioner, it, the uh, Wayfair was for the states, it was the, the dog chasing the bus and the dog finally caught the bus. And uh, they, the, the states have been figuring out exactly what they've wanted to do. And this is, this is really the, the states kind of rushing in and, and some of them had their plans a little more fleshed out than others, but they've been, now that they've caught it, they're all rushing in to try to implement their taxes and, and, and keep that revenue that they, as they visualize it slipping away, they, they see it as trying to, to keep more of that revenue from slipping away. So these are the states right now that uh, have adopted or announced, you know, they've made some sort of announcement uh, what they're going to do for sales tax. 
but it stands to reason that these same uh, states would at least uh, have something going for income tax as well, don't you think? Certainly. In fact, even before, Dan, as you alluded to, uh, even before Wayfair, many states took the position that Quill was a sales tax case. Therefore, it only applies, the physical presence protections only apply in income in a sales tax scenario. I always took issue with that because um, it, it should be theoretically, if there's going to be a difference between nexus for sales tax and income tax, it should be harder to have nexus for income tax and sales tax. One is just a collection burden, uh, and one is, man, you got to pay it out of your own pocket. So as a practical matter, though, um, since states took the position that Quill only applied to sales taxes, in many states it was actually easier to have nexus for income tax than even sales tax. That kind of goes away with Wayfair. So under Quill, um, under Quill, where, where Quill introduced the, this physical presence protection and they parenthetically mentioned sales taxes, and so states started trying to go one way with sales tax nexus and another way with income tax nexus, um, there, be, there started to be this diversion between the standards for income tax nexus and uh, standards for sales tax nexus. So it became really tricky. Now, as in the wake of Wayfair and as we move forward, I think that we will see a conversion back to uh, of very, very similar standards for nexus for income tax as for sales taxes. So from, from an e-commerce business standpoint, um, if you get audited, yes, you want to make every argument you can, including uh, public ID 6272. But in terms of trying to decide where should you be filing income tax returns, um, that it, it, it lends itself to more of a conservative approach where you say, uh, do I really want to incur penalties and interest for taking this position? Um, and should I be more conservative? What do you think, Dan? Uh, I think, well, I think uh, for certainly if on a, planning perspective, on the one hand, you do want to be, uh, you, you want to be conservative where it makes sense. Uh, I, I would say 86272 is a pretty solid defense for a lot of e-com sellers. If you are, if you're, if your only source of, of revenue is through fulfillment by Amazon sales, then primarily you're, you're going to be selling tangible personal property. So you're going to meet that prong. Your only presence in the, now any, state that has a fulfillment center, you're going to have inventory, which is agreed upon will exceed the protections of 86272. But for all those states that do not yet have an Amazon warehouse, public law 86272 is, is going to be a pretty solid, as long as it's not your home state, a, a pretty solid defense. Uh, so we, we still advise weighing all the factors that you could have, uh, you could have some exotic uh, business model that kind of kicks it out. But generally speaking, 86272 should protect you in a lot of those cases. Uh, but if you're in, in looking at other things like software and, and uh, where, where it gets gray, then I would be very careful before relying on, on 
on trying to argue that software is tangible personal property and subject to those protections. Um, but the, the one thing that you kind of have to keep in mind for income tax, not so much that not as to a greater degree than sales tax is sales tax has a sales tax. The returns can be relatively easy to do and you can knock them all out in a couple of afternoons. Uh, you get, you've got single rate states. You've got, you've got a number of issues that work that can make the, you get, you get definition differences. Compliance can get tricky there. But anybody that says sales tax compliance is, is a difficult thing uh, has never tried to do uh, depreciation differences between states for income tax. Uh, any CPA will say, here, hold my workday approved non-alcoholic beverage and watch this. Uh, it, there's, there's no matter what state you're in, there's going to be differences between the, uh, the state regs and the, the state statute and the IRS statute bonus depreciation, uh, differences for, at, you're going to have add backs and subtractions. And apportionment, the, allocation. Uh, apportionment, allocation, uh, even TPP apportionment's usually pretty simple, but all that means that the cost of preparing those returns is going to be significantly higher than sales tax. And if you try to do it yourself, significantly more complicated. So it really puts a different spin on making those determinations as to do I just register and, and do I file? Uh, we certainly uh, uh, don't necessarily advise a client not to file income tax where it's due, but in, in looking at, at uh, weighing, weighing all the factors, if you've got a five, if the state says you own income tax return and your apportioned income comes out to $6, don't know that you make your own opinions on that, I will say. Right. So we always uh, want to help our clients not only stay technically compliant, but also where it makes fiscal sense, right? We don't, we don't want to just go out and get registered and filing income tax returns all over the place because Dan, as you so uh, well pointed out, uh, these things are expensive to prepare. Uh, when you just have to get apportionment data. I mean, some e-commerce sellers struggle just to produce a report of sales by state. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think it's been beneficial for us to just review what are some of the factors that create nexus for income tax, how Public Law 6272 interacts with that, and, and the difference that Wayfair has made. And so for e-commerce sellers, um, you should really consider where you potentially have nexus and whether or not you have significant exposure in the past. And if you do have significant exposure in the past, then you should consider uh, weigh the benefits versus the cost of filing a voluntary disclosure. So Dan, that brings us to a close on this week's Ecom Sales Tax Podcast. Thanks for being a part of it. And thanks to all of you who listened in and we'll see you next week.